0: Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, I I didn't tell him I was going to say this, and I shouldn't say it in front of all of you all, but I loved Reverend Cooney's sermon last week. I thought it was wonderful, and um, I thought that it set the the ground for our our four Sunday trek through Advent, Um, and I want to do just a little bit more groundwork to kind of build on what he said. So obviously we're not in 1 and 2 Timothy anymore. We finished that two weeks ago, which is just in time for the beginning of Advent. And Advent has begun. And Reverend Cunningham characterized Advent as a reawakening or a rediscovery of our desire for Jesus. Advent is also the time when the church year begins. And you have various calendars, right? The school year begins in like August or September or July, if you're in the Vail School District. Um, The the fiscal year begins like in July. The calendar year begins in January. For the church year, our season, our calendar begins at the beginning of Advent. And we have a tradition here at Cross and Crown. At Cross and Crown, at the beginning of the church year, we go back to using the lectionary. Now, what's the lectionary? The lectionary is a set of Bible readings assigned to each Sunday. And it's kind of cool how this developed. Um, We know that by the 100s, the earliest Christians were reading both from the Old Testament and the New Testament as part of their Sunday worship. That would be just like we do. But this practice of choosing passages immediately brought up a practical problem. The Bible has 66 books. Some of them are huge. Isaiah has like 66 chapters. Some of them are smaller, but in your English Bible, there are over a thousand pages. So the practical question is, obviously, we cannot read the whole thing every Sunday. How do you choose what you're going to read on a, on a given Sunday? And, and there were two old answers to this question and one relatively modern answer. The oldest answer that I, can, that I know of is, you take a book... You basically chop it into pieces, and you read it, and you preach through it straight through, continuously. And the Latin phrase, the Latin name for this is Lectio continua, which just means reading continuously. This is how somebody like uh, Chrysostom, preaching in the 300s, or Augustine, preaching in the 400s, would have chosen the text for each Sunday. Whatever is next in the book that they're reading, that's what they preach on. It's what uh, actually Calvary Chapel does, is famous for doing still to this day, to their benefit. And um, a lot can be said for Lectio Continua. First, you get to hear the whole book. So we as a church, those of us who have been here since 2019, have heard all of 1 Peter, all of Acts, all of 1 Timothy, and all of 2 Timothy, all of it together. And we do this every summer and every fall because Bible reading is one of those things that we decided when we planted the church, that um, we were going to make a, a significant value to us. So reading through the Bible together, reading the Bible on our own, these are important to us. But another very old way of answering the question, what should we read on Sunday morning, is to assign specific texts for specific days. Already by the 300s in North Africa, the Christians were doing this. We know that they chose to read the book of Jonah every single Holy Week. Why? Well, probably it has to do with something like Jesus saying, you won't be given any sign except the sign of Jonah. And so every Holy Week, just before Easter, they would read the book of Jonah. And over the centuries, um, readings got assigned not just to Holy Week and Easter, But then to all the other major festivals like Christmas and Ascension and Pentecost and Epiphany, and eventually to every single Sunday. And these readings are, roughly speaking, especially from the beginning of Advent all the way through Pentecost, which is in May, these readings roughly follow the life of Christ. And so it's a real Christocentric way of preaching through the Bible. And it's valuable, right, to try and keep Christ at the center of everything that we do. Jesus at the center of everything that we are is a big deal. We call ourselves Christians, after all. Yes, it's kind of important. Now, just as an aside, the more modern way is not actually um, terribly modern. Um, a lot of churches will choose a topic and then choose the text based on the topic. Uh, we've, Christians have been doing this for a long time. It's just we always did it during the week, not, during on, not on Sundays. So, because the church year just started, because it's Advent, and this is a season of anticipation and looking forward and desiring, you're going to hear some odd texts. For instance, you're going to hear a lot of John the Baptist for the next three weeks, which might seem odd because that's not very Christmassy. When I think of Christmas, I don't think of fire and brimstone and like hair skin shirts and repent or the axe is laid to the root of the trees type stuff. But there's a reason for this, and it's, it's the, you, can, you can grab it based on the word anticipation. After this, after Advent, comes Christmas, obviously, which is the birth of Jesus. And then we're going to work through kind of the major movements of Jesus' life. First comes Epiphany, which is the revelation that this man, Jesus, is God. And then Lent, which is all about Jesus' human sufferings working towards his death on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter, his teaching the disciples after Easter and about the coming of the Holy Spirit, his ascension and then Pentecost and the season's over. Sound good? Now, this is the, pe- this is the festival season. And what we're going to do this year is we're going to join roughly a billion other Christians reading and following the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. This is the fun part about this. All over the world, Christians are going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark to learn what Jesus did. And because Mark is what Mark is, which we'll get into in just a minute, you can't just go straight through Mark. Um, So we're going to eventually, occasionally need to pick from other Gospels to get stuff that Mark doesn't include. But our goal is to primarily preach through the Gospel of Mark. So for the next six months, you'll hear Mark. And so I think it's worth spending just a little time setting this up. So, here's how I want to do this. Imagine that you are Peter. Okay? You uh, walked with Jesus for three years. You had that very traumatic experience where you denied Jesus just at the moment. He needed his friends most, but then he intentionally brought you back in the most loving way possible. He spends 40 days after his resurrection teaching you about himself, teaching you about the life to come. And then he leaves. He ascends to heaven. And a few days later, the Holy Spirit comes and fills you and you, Peter, preach the most rocking sermon ever preached in the history of humanity. And like 3000 people are converted just like that. And it's awesome. And then you go through this, let's say this is right around 30, 33 AD. You go and you're preaching and you're teaching and things are trying to get figured out. James kind of takes over running the Jerusalem church. You as Peter and the other 12 apostles spread out throughout the world, preaching and teaching your little hearts out. And it's gorgeous. And at some point, you, Peter, end up in Rome. And we don't exactly know how. But we know it's a time when, like we were covering with Paul in 2 Timothy, things are not going well for Christians. But this is not actually your biggest concern, because you understand when Jesus said, you'll be baptized with my baptism, he meant that, Peter, you're going to die. So you know you're going to be a martyr. Actually, the biggest problem for you, Peter, as you're preaching in Rome, is that you're a fisherman from the boonies. And everybody in Rome speaks Latin, or if not Latin, at least Greek, and you're not, probably you have a passing knowledge of these languages, but if you really wanted to preach to all these Gentiles, you need more than a passing knowledge. So what do you do? Well, you go find somebody... Who can translate for you. This is what people always do when they go to a culture where they don't know the language that well. They bring in a translator, and you go looking for somebody. You need somebody who, on the one hand, was with you guys in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus and saw some of the stuff that, that Jesus did and said, but also who could speak Latin fluently. And it just so happens there's a young man who is available because a few years back he got kicked out of a mission trip by Paul. And so he's kind of like unemployed right now. But he speaks Latin and his name is John Mark. And Mark, we are told, becomes Peter's translator and at some point, we're not exactly sure when, takes all of Peter's preaching notes, the stories that Peter loved best to tell about Jesus, the way that Peter expressed the gospel. Mark takes that and he strings it all together into one continuous narrative and that gives us the book of Mark. And the thing is, if you go to the book of Mark, I, uh, I always, if anybody's not a reader, and um, I make them read a gospel, or I want to read a gospel with them, the one we always choose is Mark, because the book of Mark is short. It is. Compared to the other gospels, it's real short. And I was taught at school, at, the, at, at seminary, that the reason it's short is because it's meant to be both memorized and performed. That one of the goals of the book of Mark is to give Christians, who don't have a lot of access to books or codices at this point, to give Christians the ability to have the gospel internalized by memorizing it. There's all these structures in the book that make it easier to remember where you are in the gospel. So it's meant to be memorized and then performed probably all at once, And if you did this, if you got together and somebody knew the Gospel of Mark and they were going to perform it for us, read it to us out loud from their head, it would take a little bit less than watching a Shakespeare play. So it's about three hours to listen to the whole thing all at once. There's something else about Mark that's interesting. It's all about action. And and I think this is a lovely thing to find out about Peter. And if you read the Gospels, you know this about Peter. Peter is not your your big brain that Paul is. Peter is not your passionate person that like Matthew or John is. Peter is not your careful historian like Luke is. Peter jumps out of the boat when Jesus is walking on the water because he's like, I want to walk on water too. And and the Gospel of Mark kind of reflects that. It's action-packed. In fact, there's not much of Jesus' teaching It's mostly what Jesus does. And one more thing, it really should be the favorite gospel of all of you Lutherans. It should be. Why? Because Mark has this very intriguing aspect that if you read it, um, you'll notice kind of right away. Mark's gospel has what scholars call the messianic secret. You ever notice this? Jesus will do something. He'll heal somebody, cast out a demon, and then he'll promptly tell the person that he helped, don't tell anybody what I did. It's actually literally right in the first chapter of Mark. So this is Mark 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer, the, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof. Why does Jesus do this? Over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark, why does he do this? But we'll look at verse one. We're going to work right through uh, our gospel reading today. So we're on page seven twelve of the the Burgundy Bibles. If you want to join us, Mark one verse one. Right away it says, in the beginning of the gospel in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He right away lays out kind of the thesis and the theme of this book. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the very Son of God. There's, you don't have to guess what's going to happen here. And then nobody says Son of God again. No human. This is important. Says that Jesus is the Son of God again throughout the whole book until Jesus is on the cross. Once Jesus is on the cross and he is dead, hanging on that cross, the centurion who is in charge of executing him says, having seen the way he died, surely this man was the son of God. Because Peter and Mark would like you to know that you cannot understand who Jesus is, what he really came to do until he's dead on that cross. You cannot, he is not a wise man, he is not a sage, he is not a kind-hearted reformer, he is not a miracle worker, he is not a holy man, he is not here to bring enlightenment, he is not here to bring you happiness. Jesus is God himself, come to die in our place, to free us from our sin, to free us from the devil's chains, and to reconcile us to God the Father, and you cannot know that. That wonderful, best of news. You cannot know that without him hanging on that cross. Something else I want to point out in verse 1 as long as we're here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says. This is the Greek word evangel that we get evangelism from or evangelical from. And usually uh, evangel, evangelism, gospel gets translated as like good tidings, good news. And what's weird is this is not a particularly Christian word. The Christians didn't invent it, unlike some words. This word is common in the Greek culture. It's used in the Greek-speaking world for a couple of things. For instance, it's used when a potential heir has been born, like the heir of a kingdom or something. It's used when a emperor, an emperor, a new emperor, ascends to the throne. Basically, when a historical event happens, which introduces an entirely new situation to the whole world, the Greeks reach for the word evangel. Gospel, which is why Mark uses it here. Jesus's advent introduces a radically new state of affairs for all of humanity. This is the best part. God is all of a sudden with us and all of a sudden is important. That's why Mark just jumps in, right? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the ESV makes it real clear that this is a quote, right? You're supposed to see, obviously, uh, Mark is quoting somebody, and he says it's Isaiah, but it's actually a mashup of three different quotes. This is from our Old Testament reading today, Isaiah 40, and it's from Exodus chapter 23, and it's from Malachi 3. What's what's going on here? Actually, it's likely that Mark didn't do this. What I mean by that is the rabbis had taken these three different passages And in the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, and the life of Jesus, the rabbis had mashed up these three passages to create kind of like a formula to describe how you could see that the Messiah king was coming. And we think this is it. Before the Messiah, before the one that the Jews have been waiting for since David's death, there will be a messenger. And this messenger will be crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and then boom, out of nowhere, John shows up. And he's in the Judean wilderness. Verse 4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to notice something. There is no explanation of where John came from. There is no backstory. There is no history. There's no stories about how poor Elizabeth couldn't have any children and then she miraculously got pregnant and then Zechariah couldn't talk for a while. There's none of that. Mark and Peter, when he's preaching this, wants you to experience John just like those people from Judea would have experienced him. Suddenly, in the wilderness, did you hear about this? There's a guy out there. Where'd he come from? I don't know. What's he doing? He's he's, he's a prophet. And he's not some second-rate prophet. John is immediately recognizable as having the primary message that all of the great Old Testament prophets have, which is what? Repent. Repent. Which is why when he shows up all of a sudden, and this is what he's doing, everybody goes out to see him. Everybody recognizes the prophetic voice, this is what verse 5 says, and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And right away, if we read this and we're paying attention, we have so many questions. I mean, like, for example, what's going on with his baptism, which we'll cover in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to notice something that we could just read right by. Mark would like to point out, and it's a big deal to Mark, that John is doing this in the wilderness. And obviously, therefore, John is in the wilderness, but not just John. John is, in fact, calling for all of God's people to join him in the wilderness, He's out in the wilderness, Mark says, twice, unnecessarily. So everybody who wants to see him, as Mark says they do, have to go out to the wilderness, and then they have to repent, and then they have to get baptized in the wilderness. And we could say he's calling God's people into the wilderness, but probably more accurately, we should say that he's calling God's people to the wilderness again. Because the wilderness is where God first met his people after freeing them from slavery in Egypt, after getting them through the Red Sea on dry ground and killing their enemies, where does Israel go? Immediately into the wilderness. Why? Because God used the wilderness to teach Israel how to be his sons. One of my professors at seminary, he taught me Hebrew, and then he taught me the book of Exodus. Now he's the seminary president, so if you need anything from the seminary, let me know. I got a guy on the inside. He used, to, uh, he, used to be, he used to say that he found it continually frustrating that many of the English translations of the book of Exodus call the Israelites, and this is what the ESV calls them, the people of Israel. That's not what it says. That's not what the text says. Throughout Exodus, they are called not the people of Israel, but the sons of Israel. Why is this important? Because it's the sons of Israel, both the male and female sons of Israel, the sons of Israel that will inherit the promised land. And of course, the only path to the promised land, according to God, is through the wilderness. So John's call to the wilderness and his call for the Israelites to repent are one and the same thing. They're a call back to sonship. And it's in the wilderness that... Jesus, God, will again meet his people and lead them on an exodus journey to the promised land. Of course, this is literally true, right? John identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and where are they when he identifies him? Do you remember? They're on the banks of the river. They're in the wilderness, which is where, by the way, God the Father recognizes his son because that's how that works. This is also figuratively true. The Christian journey always starts in the wilderness of repentance. This word repentance is is familiar to us, most of us. It's the word metanoia in Greek. It means to reorient yourself, to turn to God and in turning to God to turn away from your sin. is why John is so tightly associated with preparing the way for Jesus. He has to preach repentance because the only way to prepare for an encounter with God is repentance. Luther defines repentance as, quote, a deep conviction and confession that you are unfit, you are a sinner, you are poor and damned and miserable that conviction prepares us for Jesus to come to us with his saving power. It's not happy and fun, but it's so good. And if we turn away from sin, if we turn toward him, then we too become, because this is what you go out into the wilderness to do, we too become sons of God. So that Paul was saying Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Even you women? Yeah. Even women. Because what that means is that you too will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's keep going. Verse 6. <clears throat> now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I'm told locusts are good. I've not tried them yet, but we have tried them. Um, we are reminded of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament in this, in this one sentence for, for a various number of reasons that I'm not going to get into because it's my text for next week. So we'll do that next week. Verse 7. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And if some people today find feet gross, which I know this is a thing that some people do, right? Especially feet of other people. This was even more so true in the ancient world. Actually, the Jews had a rule that you could not make your servants do this. It's against the rules to make your servant take off your shoes for you. Only the absolute lowest slave could do that. So what John is saying is, yes, he's going to come after me. And that's going to make you think that I'm the greater person because I'm first. But actually the reverse is true. I am the lowest possible servant in any household compared to Jesus. Verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now this is kind of the big question. What's going on with this baptism of John thing? What's John saying here? And the first thing I'm going to say is what he's not saying. John is not saying that there are two kinds of baptism, that there's water baptism and then there's baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. You heard this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit? or Holy Spirit baptism. It's a belief that's taught by our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ that there are two baptisms available to Christians and that that's what this teaches. Yes, there's water baptism, that's for everybody, but there's also a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a second additional grace that has nothing to do with water. And I'm just going to be blunt about this, that's just not what the Bible teaches. It's not even close. It's It's a deep confusion about what's going on here. And and one of my proofs for this is that this is not classic Christian teaching, which is what we all strive to be in line with all the other Christians that have gone before us. In fact, um, you cannot find it anywhere except for a guy named R.C. Horner, who wrote a book in 1891, using this phrase for the first time. So if that's not what he's talking about, he's not talking about two different baptisms, one of water and one of the Holy Spirit, what is John the Baptist saying? Well, he's saying just as he is like the lowest slave compared to Jesus, so his baptism is like nothing compared to the baptism that Jesus wants to give to his people. Don't get me wrong. John's baptism is great. He says, "If you repent and you are baptized, your sins will be forgiven. That's John the Baptist's baptism. Repentance is the entrance into the Christian life. And when you repent, God forgives your sins. That's what John's baptism offers. But but it's just for the Jews. It's just for Israel. It's just for Jerusalem and Judea. And John even says that it is preparatory, meaning it prepares the Jews for what the Messiah will bring. And what will the Messiah bring? Jesus' baptism takes John. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't negate John's baptism or contradict John's baptism. It picks it up. This is so the way of the gospel. It picks up John's baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins, and it carries it even further. Still, you get baptism with water. Still you get repentance. Still you get forgiveness of sins. But John says the Messiah is going to add to what I am doing, what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That thing that humanity has longed for since the garden. Since the moment we could no longer walk with God. We could no longer be in his presence because of our sin. Jesus' baptism is going to bring God himself to his people. And the thing that's really striking about this is this is exactly what Peter says on that first sermon on Pentecost. I, I, I like Acts 2, so I quote from it a lot, but I want you to hear it. Okay? This is Acts 2, starting at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, and he almost exactly quotes John, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself." And 3,000 people get added to the church that day. So, whereas John's baptism was just for Jews and was just a precursor, Jesus' baptism is permanent and for all. That's what Peter says. For you and your children, for every generation. That's what Jesus says on, in Matthew 28, go into all nations, every, everybody, and baptize them. But there's even more, because this is always God's way. There's always just more and more and more. If you go through the New Testament asking, what does Jesus' baptism give? There is an unbelievable wealth of answers. Romans 6 tells us that Jesus' baptism gives resurrection life. You hear this every time we baptize somebody here at the church. We read Romans 6, but I want you to hear it again. Hear it with new ears. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Colossians 2 says the same thing, that we are made alive in baptism. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that Jesus' baptism justifies us and makes us holy. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you, you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, made in a right relationship Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just keep going. 1 Corinthians 12. You are made a part of the body of Christ. He says, We were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the same spirit. Galatians 3 says you get Jesus' righteousness, and then because you get Jesus' righteousness, you become an heir to the promises that God made to Abraham. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you Christ's than your Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus' baptism makes you holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says that, the, that this baptism that Jesus brings is the entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 3 says that baptism... Corresponds to Noah and the Ark. Baptism is the way through death, through water, into new life. This is 1 Peter 3 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And it's fitting to end these kind of these, this, this onslaught of verses in Mark. Mark 16, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. I want to say one last thing here. When I was becoming a Lutheran, many of you uh, were not born Lutherans. I was not born a Lutheran. When I was becoming a Lutheran, this was the most difficult thing about Lutheran tradition to me, that baptism does so much that Jesus' baptism offers all these things, gives all these things. Last week, we had baby Sam's baptism. Next week, we're going to have Jade Parkinson's baptism. And and for some of you, this this idea that Jesus' baptism does all these things for these babies, for some of you, it's a really difficult idea. You have questions about how it applies to babies. You have theological implications that you're not sure you're okay with that come with this, and, I, and I'm not gonna, I'm not able to answer all of those right now, obviously. And if you want, I'm, I would love to get together and we can parry verses, I'll bring my proof text and you bring your proof text, and we'll just go out and we'll figure out what the Bible teaches. But I wanna simply put this this way to you guys. For those of us that do believe that this is what the Bible teaches, first thing I wanna point out is what a delight there is here. That Jesus did this for me. That Jesus gave me all these things. And then I wanna point out that of course, if Jesus gave all these things to me, the next thought I have is that I want them for the people who are closest to me too. The people that are dependent on me My desire and my longing is to be near, as Reverend Cooney said yesterday, to to pursue, to desire to be near Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And to use the words of the old baptismal prayer that we use at the end of the baptism service, then my next deepest longing is for baby Sam to never know a day without Jesus' presence. Without his presence, the presence of his spirit. That's what we're doing. That's what Jesus offers. Amen. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please stand.